The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Uh, this guy is uh, my brother and my friend. I had the privilege of marrying uh, he and his wife uh, not too long ago. And uh, I am so excited for the word that he's going to bring to us. And not only is he my brother and my friend, uh, he's also a member of this church. And, and so uh, one of the privileges that we have is using uh, the gifts of the body and, and acknowledging that Richard and I aren't the only ones gifted in our body. And, and so we want to acknowledge that this morning. So we're going to have Justin, my friend Justin Henderson, come and share a word with us this morning. Why don't we give him a hand and welcome him. Morning downtown. I want to thank my good friend Chris for that introduction. You always know if you have a, um, a good and genuine authentic friendship with somebody um, after hearing them introduce you. If they lie on your behalf, that's a good friend right there. Isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. A, a little bit about Chris, and uh, I, I won't tear it long. I'll get right into the word. Um, one thing I can say about Chris is um, I've had the benefit of knowing him intimately, meaning we, we were roommates for quite some time, about at least a couple of years. Um, and I can say he's a man of integrity, Michael. And the reason I can say that is because I was an undergraduate Bible major. Um, Chris had long since finished seminary, and so he was an adjunct professor. He and Richard shared the teaching responsibility. So while he was my roommate, he was also my professor. Never gave me the answers to anything. You know, <laughs> well, would have been nice. But he, he's a man of integrity, both both on and off the clock. Not just before you uh, during his verbal proclamation of the gospel, but in word and in deed. Something that's a rarity nowadays. So I thank God for your friendship, Chris. Um, and then lastly, uh, just thank you for your consideration. Allow me to to, um, to stand and, and, and approach this sacred desk. I know how serious of a task uh, this is. Usually whenever I'm asked to preach, um, it means at least two or three preachers got sick or injured or something like that. Um, and, <laughs> and Chris will never tell me the truth, but I, we're praying for the family that whatever pastor got hurt so that I, so that I could be here on this morning. Um, that being said, I, I'd like to ask you to direct your attention to the book of Acts, the second chapter. Book of Acts, the second chapter. And I know it's uh, usually our custom to have somebody come up and read the word of God before the message. I think uh, it's not been read this morning, right? Acts, the second chapter. And if you should have arrived there, why not make your way down to, say about the 40, 41st verse. And what you, if you just follow with your eyes, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Um, I'll try to enunciate and bring a little life to it as if, as if the word of God needed that. Um, I would ask you, this is a tradition of mine, I would ask that those who are physically able, why not stand in honor of uh, the word of God? And I want y'all to pardon some of my traditions, even though they seem archaic. 
I was was reared in the Little Hill Baptist Church in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, was my introduction to all things church. So y'all bear with me. Um, Acts the second chapter, starting at verse 41. If you should have arrived there, let it be known by saying amen. All right. I'm reading from the ESV. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Somebody say, isn't that something? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Watch this. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and, uh, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May I like that 42nd verse again? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I, I just want to talk about for a few minutes, church in a nutshell. You may be seated in the presence and power of our God. Church in a nutshell. Father, we thank you for your presence in your household. Allow me to speak boldly on your behalf and just hide me behind the cross. I pray that I decrease and that you increase. Amen. <laughs> so one thing that's been a perpetual pursuit of mine downtown is that, um, I don't know, maybe it's been, I guess, a decade or so back, is that I decided to strive toward being a renaissance man. Um, and, and that included all facets. I decided I was going to go eagerly and fervently toward uh, developing my physical physique. I even decided I'd do better. I know y'all can't tell, but I'm just saying these are aspirations of mine. Um, I decided to become a more disciplined student. And so I wanted that to be evident in my academic pursuits. Michael Rhodes and, and Chris can tell you that didn't necessarily come into fruition. And so you know, it's, it's a laundry list of things that I sought to excel at in this um I guess it's this role I assumed of trying to accomplish being a renaissance man. And, and, and I noticed some significant success in some areas, but there was one area where I just noticed nothing but consistent and frequent failure. And I, that was, I was never able to uh, develop any kind of keen culinary skills. Couldn't cook to save my life. But uh been blessed to have a wife that's into physical fitness. And so she was able to share with me some dishes that are quite simple. Among those are turkey burgers. And her recipe for turkey burgers is, is, is very simple. You get your ground turkey. And what the recipe calls for is uh, a handful or two of spinach. And you would, you would break that up and chop that up, put that in there. Uh, two tablespoons of, of uh, teaspoons of rosemary. And then a couple teaspoons of sea salt. Uh, and then you put them on a forming grill if that's your, you know, your, suits your fancy. And then and not too long you have turkey burgers. Now, this is an interesting thing about that recipe. I can manipulate that recipe according to my taste. Uh, so if I'm, if I'm feeling I don't want to be too healthy that day, then I can double what the recipe calls for in terms of salt. Uh, if I'm not feeling like Popeye and I don't want my spinach, I can remove that 
uh, from what the recipe calls for. And at the end of the day, I'll still have turkey burgers. But I did have other meals, other dishes uh, that are kind of unforgiving when you talk about what the recipe calls for. If I were to try to bake a cake downtown and, and not use eggs, uh, at the end of the day, I'd have some kind of unique concoction. But what I would not have is a cake. I'm going somewhere with this. When I look at this, verse 42, there's a recommendation here. And what I see is this is God's vision for God's church. He's given us a very, very simple recipe. What we need to understand is that recipe is very, very unforgiving. He talks about they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, uh, to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship. Now, if I were to remove any one of those ingredients, I would have something at the end of the day. But what I fear I would not have down church, downtown is I would not have a church. And what I see in this contemporary age is that I see that we've manipulated this recipe for whatever reason. And, and, and it may be because a lot, of, a lot of our zeal for capitalism has crept into Christendom. And, what, and, and because of our love for our pursuit for enterprise, we've stepped away from God's vision for the church. What we need to realize is that what Acts 2 is, is painting a picture of is God's vision for his church. Not our vision for our enterprise. And what we've done is substituted evangelism for enterprise. Now don't get me wrong, the church does business. But I have a problem with us when we say that the church is a business. We, we do better to say that the church does business because if we make the primary goal of, of the church profit, then we move away from a lot of God's principles. When I look at this, the building blocks of this verse start in verse 41. What happens is Peter preaches this awesome sermon and an amazing thing happens. It says 3,000 people are saved on that day. Now think about that. We're talking about exponential growth. Bring that into, you know, 2,000 years later, to the here and now. If 50 people got saved this morning, we would be overjoyed. Chris, I know I would be. <laughs> if 20 people joined this church, we, we, that'd be cause for celebration. 3,000 people in one instance. Now, what I want you to understand is that Peter's goal was not to establish a mega church. Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God blesses and breathes on that moment. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not rebuking the implementation of strategy. Because we, we, we see that here. And, and, and Pastor Richard has, uh, this is the third church initiative he's planted. Strategy was involved in, in all of those. And, and the strategy probably grew in each process. So strategy has a place. But I think we can make an idol out of strategy. Because when we see the exponential growth of God's church here, it's because of the preaching of the gospel, independent of any kind of aim. Peter wasn't saying, you know, I want to go down to history as, as pastor of the greatest church in Jerusalem. He, that, that was his goal. He was preaching the gospel. Many times at a great cost. By the, by the end of his life, certainly at a great cost. But he's preaching the gospel. We've substituted that zeal for evangelism for a zeal for enterprise. But, but look at these elements. He talks about the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God. I'm going to hang my hat there in just a second. But he also talks about prayer. Now, these are surface elements. This is not what I would consider really deep-seated theology. You talk about what does it take to make a church with prayer. I would, I would imagine so. Dedication to the word of God. Fellowship and communion. Now, what can I say about prayer? Prayer is so important. I, I celebrate 
um, everything Chris just shared with us, and I, and I try to preach in that vein. Prayer is so important. Do you know that prayer is a it's a hallmark of the church, but not just collectively, individually. Prayer is an identifying marker of the believer. How do I know this? Take the Apostle Paul before he was the esteemed apostle that you know and love and, and revere uh, from his writings in the New Testament. Here it is. This man has a resume for destruction in the church, for wreaking havoc on believers, uh, uh, for conceding to the martyrdom of the first uh, Christian martyr, the, the, the deacon Stephen. Here it is. He's developed such a reputation that no believer wants to put their hands on him. And so God kind of has to argue his task. And certainly it's nothing too hard for God. But God has the task of convincing a believer that Paul is in fact redeemed and now a born again believer and a part of his family. How in the world does Paul do this? He wants Ananias to spend some time uh, with Paul who is right now feared for his destructive hand on God's church. God has to convince Ananias that Paul is a Christian. How in the world does he do this? Now, does Paul, uh, uh, does God appeal to Paul's academic credential? Ananias, this is a, this is a Pharisee, you understand? He, he, he's memorized the, the Old Testament. He, he's well versed in scripture. He doesn't do that. This, this is a Roman citizen. He, he, he'll be instrumental in evangelism all over the Roman Empire. He does not do that. He says, Ananias, I need you to know that he belongs to me. Watch what he says in the book of Acts. He says, behold, he prayeth. In other words, Ananias, this is the way you know that this is my child because he's praying. Now, I'm trying my best to preach this boldly, but i got to be honest with you, this is an indictment even on me. So I'm preaching to y'all downtown and I'm preaching to myself just like Paul. I share sentiments when he says, I don't speak as one who's apprehended. I'm pressing toward the mark. This, this is very indicting to me. But I need you to understand that prayer is an identifying marker of the believer individually and collectively. He says, I need you to know that this former, former persecutor of the church is now a legitimate believer and you know it because he's talking to me. How many people can say that about you? How do people know you're a Christian not because you're a card-carrying member uh, of the Presbyterian denomination? Not because you're a frequent uh, visitor uh, of, of downtown church. Not because of your close relationships with the religious elite. Not because of your ability to regurgitate scripture. How many people know that you belong to God because you're praying? Mm. How many people know that you belong to God because of your proclivity to intercede on their behalf when they're going through periods of adversity? How many people know that you belong to God because uh, when your back is against the wall, uh, the first thing you do is get in his face? How many people know you belong to God because when things are going your way, you celebrate him? I, I, I love, see, see, don't you realize that your prayer is not just an identified marker, but it's also a witness don't you remember when, uh, before Lazarus' resurrection, <laughs> Jesus says, uh, uh, something, pardon my crude paraphrase, but he says, Father, I thank you that you heard my prayer. Then he says parenthetically, Father, I know that you always hear me. But for those that are standing here, I said, I thank you that you heard my prayer. See, his, his prayer is a witness. He said, Father, I, I need these people who, who don't know you that intimately. To know that they can know you intimately. To know that there's power in, in, in that intimate relationship. That's one that can be cultivated. 
We'll talk about how and why that's possible in just a minute. So prayer, prayer is an identified marker. Can I tell you something else about prayer? Prayer prepares you for spiritual warfare. I said it prepares you for spiritual warfare. A lot of us carry prayer around in our back pocket and prayer is our last resort. We use prayer like that fire extinguisher that's behind the glass and you break this in case of emergency. You don't break prayer in case of emergency. Now you have to be already prayer. That, that, that's a, you'll find the hard way that that is a power, powerless and ineffectual life when you use prayer in that regard. Ask me how I know. You go, go to the Gospel of Mark somewhere around chapter 9. And, and what you'll see is you'll see some young and eager disciples. Now, Jesus has sent, sent them out, sent out the 70, uh, sent them out two by two. They're going around, they evangelizing. Some people accepting the gospel, some people not. They're shaking the dust off their feet. Guess what else they're doing? They're casting out demons and, and, and getting cocky with it. Uh, once upon a time, they go up to our, our Lord and they say, You know what? Even the demons are subject to us <laughs> at your name. But a strange thing happens. Uh, a man brings his son to the disciples. Son is having all kind of seizures. Um, I mean, life-threatening stuff that's being done because the son is possessed by a demon. Now, these disciples who have been, been, uh, you know, have realized some success in the past uh, in terms of exorcism, having a little trouble, more than just a little trouble, uh, with casting out this demon. Jesus walks up to the boy. And cast the demon right out. Now, I don't know who's more bewildered. The father, whose son is now freed from the bondage of that demon possession, or the disciples themselves, because they raise a significant question. They say, um, Master, why were we not able to cast it out? He says, this kind can only come forth through fasting and prayer. Jesus doesn't stop right there. And hold a prayer visual to exercise the demon out of the boy. Evidently, Jesus has already been praying. And so we can't wait until we face spiritual adversity to decide that we're going to begin a prayer life. We got to realize this is something that, that is, is, has to be perpetual in our lives. We don't wait until an uh, emergency. We, we prepare for emergency. It's almost like uh, when the official shoots that gun in the air. It's not time to get in shape for the marathon. Could you imagine that he shoot the gun? Oh, well, time to get in shape. This is not going to work out well for us, but that's how we treat spiritual warfare, something as, as serious as that. We, we wait until it's time. No, these kind can only come out, those of us who are already prepared. This is how Jesus prepared for spiritual warfare. He's fasting uh, in the wilderness 40 days. Then here it is, uh, the, the, the devil comes to tempt him, and he's ready. He's prepared for that. And you gotta know it comes. James says, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Not if you fall, when you fall. It's coming. If you're a believer, you, you can bet it is coming. The devil is interested in you. You a target now. You belong to God. You, you messing up his plan. Yeah. It, it, it's time for you to, it, it's high time for you to get into the fight. And that happens in your prayer closet. It happens in your, in your prayer closet. So prayer prepares us for for spiritual warfare. <laughs> One, you know who knows that better than, than us? The devil knows that. And so you have to really, you got to plan to pray. 
you almost gotta have a, a, a getaway. It's gotta be part of your, your, your balanced breakfast. I mean, you, you gotta have a regimen. Do y'all remember when, uh, Judas shows up in, in, in Gethsemane with a, uh, a detachment of, of Roman soldiers? They're ready to arrest our Lord. Have y'all ever thought about how this rendezvous is made possible? Y'all know this is over two millennia in the past. This predates GPS, Facebook check-in, satellite, any of that. How in the world, how in the world does Judas know where to find Jesus? Because of the consistency of his prayer life. He can tell us, I I know where Jesus is going to be. He up there praying. No cell phone, no pager, no no smoke signal. He's praying. How many of us can, can, can that be said about? How many of us, our friends, know where they can find us? Well, don't answer that because some of our friends do know where they can find us. It ain't our prayer closet. Come on, talk back to me. Can we be honest this morning? I'm a member here. I ain't, but they know where they can find Jesus. That's how consistent his prayer life is. We can arrest him. He's going to be in this prayer closet. I'm going to tell you something else. When you really start talking about spiritual formation, I mean really taking on the character of God, uh, there's no atmosphere more conducive to that than in your prayer closet. I, I got to go back to Gethsemane because it, it's just such a, a vivid picture of the power of prayer. Watch this. Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. This is a Bible teaching church. This is, this, so these I can go use these examples because they're not new to you. I just want to revisit them. Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. He's a, a, a stone's throw away from uh, the disciples. And what he's praying to God is a very, very sincere prayer. He's saying, Father, allow this cup to pass from me. He says, but if the only way this cup can pass from me is that I drink it, then nevertheless, not my will be done, but what? But your will be done. He's saying, Father, allow this cup to pass from me. I don't want to have to go, th- I don't want to have to undergo what I'm going to have to undergo. But if there's no other way for the world to, to, to attain salvation, then through that, then, then not my will. Because my will, I, I don't want to have to do this. I know everything that's going to be in hell. I'm about to be, be exhausted, uh, be beaten, be humiliated, have my beard plucked out, be called everything but, but a child of God. I'm going to all but dehydrate in this sun. He said, I, I don't want to have to go through that. But if there's no other way, and, and this is not no, no prayer that he prays one time. I mean, this is almost like a, a, a precursor to Paul when he, when he prays for the, the, the thorn in his side to be removed. This is something that after he rebukes the disciples for falling asleep, he comes and prays again. And scripture even says he goes back and prays more fervently. So he's praying even more eagerly to God than he did the first time. He's saying that if you can allow this cup to pass, God do it. But now watch this. Let me show you the power of prayer. This is how you begin to take on and get in tune with the heartbeat of God. The detachment of Roman soldiers get ready to lay hands on Jesus. The apostle Peter, true to form, intervenes. Cuts off Malchus' ear. Jesus rebukes him. But listen to his words. He says, Peter, the cup that I'm supposed to drink, shall I not drink it? Well, now wait a minute, Jesus. You just prayed not to drink the cup several times. The subsequent times you prayed, you prayed it more fervently than you did the initial time. Now you're rebuking Peter because he's coming in between you and the cup that you just prayed for God not to remove from you. 
What's the difference now, Jesus, that you're so eager to partake of this cup that once upon a time you didn't want a taste of it? That's the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer. So a lot of things God is calling you to do right now, you don't want to have no part of. If you really knew what God was calling you to do, a lot of times we're, we're eager to jump into certain ministry initiatives because we don't know what it entails in terms of adversity. I believe these, these old covenant prophets and even some of these new uh, Testament first century prophets had a better understanding of the commitment of ministry than we do. You see when God would call a prophet, they say, oh, oh no, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Now ministry is, is, a, is attractive, you know, particularly in the West, particularly in America. And you, you can make a decent living if you're a big-time pastor like Chris, you know. Not, not, not an itinerant minister like myself. but uh, He just came back from Vegas. I don't know if y'all know. I don't, I don't know if that was in the church budget or what. I just, you know, just full disclosure. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, he called Isaiah, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Trying to anoint people to be king. No, I'm from the smallest tribe. Getting you can be a leader. No, 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 no. Now everybody wants to jump up. Everybody wants to pass. Everybody wants to lead. They don't, they don't know what it entails. But prayer is, is what puts you in tune with the heartbeat of God. I ain't going to have time to deal with all of those elements of the church, but I just feel like with, where, with some of the things the church is going through, um, I should really spend time uh, with prayer. Just a couple of more, more things. <laughs> There used to be this term we would throw out for those who had really, really committed prayer lives in the church. We would call them prayer warriors. Y'all have heard that terminology? And I understand the logic behind it, but I think it can kind of be self-defeated because what it presupposes is that consistent prayer lives are something that is reserved for the spiritual elite. I think that's an unhealthy take on prayer because prayer is not for the spiritual elite. Prayer is for the spiritual if you've been born again at all, then, then you need to have some kind of prayer life. Prayer is simply how you communicate with God. Communication is the lifeblood of any relationship. So if you've been born again, you ought to pray. And guess, guess what? Prayer, I, I, I kind of liken it to what they used to say when they were, um, how they used to market the Reese's. Uh, they would show all these people who ate the, the Reese's pieces different kind of ways. At the end, they would say there's no wrong way to, to eat a Reese's. Now, I'm not so naive that I'm going to tell you all there's no wrong way to pray. I think there are a few. But I can say this with, with confidence, there's no wrong time to pray. Wherever you find yourself, you're in an opportune uh, position uh, to meet God at the throne. What do I mean? Maybe you've been struggling with carnality. Pray to God give you an appetite for his holiness. Prayer is not for the seminary student only or exclusively for senior pastors. It's not for the fearless missionary that's in some uncharted land where they've never heard the name of Jesus. Not for everybody. If you've been out of, out of fellowship with God uh, because of sin, pray, pray for purity. Maybe you're lacking intimacy with God. Pray for consistency in your prayer life. Maybe you struggle to understand the, the intrinsic truths found in, in this text. Pray for the illumination that comes from the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you, you with ease understand, you know, the finer points of theology. Well, then you need to pray for humility. Knowledge puffeth up. But, but there's, there's, no, there's no wrong time to, to pray. Maybe you've been feeling overwhelmingly alienated. Then you need to pray for spiritual community. I remember seasons like that in my life. You, you need accountability. Maybe you're a victim of your own extroversion. You, you don't have problems making friends, but you need to pray for solitude. You, you can't quite find the time to steal away, you know, and, and just really commune with God. 
And lastly, let, let me say this as I, as I think I'm making my way uh, to my seat. Prayer is progressive. Don't get discouraged if you're, you know, you can't pray like Elijah that, that, that shut up the heaven and ain't rain for three and a half years. You would get to that. Just start off. I like it to prayer to like a baby learning how to talk. Don't you know when a baby first begins to communicate, um, it, it mostly consists uh, exclusively of crying out. So the baby experiences the discomfort of, of a, a diaper that needs to be changed. He's crying. He, he's not verbally expressing his discomfort through English. He's not there yet. But now he's crying out. He's reaching out to loved ones. Baby gets hungry. He's crying out. Unintelligible speech. Uh, ba- baby is lonely. He feels like he's lacking attention. Uh, he cries out. But then after so long, a strange things begins to happen. You begin to hear these uh, sibilances of the English language come from that baby. Stuff like dada and, and, and mama and, 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 you know, things that you, you can make out. And we celebrate those moments. Why? Not because the baby has begun to communicate. He was doing that the whole time. But initially, his communication is exclusively consists of just crying out of his discomfort. But now, he's using intelligible words, the English language. He's communicating in the same way that his father does. Well, don't you notice how prayer is just like that? Initially, when you first begin to pray, it's, it's just kind of un- unintelligible. It's just a crying out of your own discomfort. Oh, God, I'm lonely. Come do something. I've been experiencing a dry spell for the last five years. Can you do something about my love life? I want to experience a little economic advancement here. Can you, can you breathe on my bank account? See the immaturity of that prayer? Not, not really talking like God. But a strange thing happens if I keep on praying. I begin to get in tune with the heartbeat of God. Now, my prayer life is different. I almost ain't even focused on me. I'm, I'm praying for people groups that I've never even came, come in contact with to come and know Jesus. I'm praying on behalf of foreign lands that I've never set foot on because these are the desires of my father's heart. So now all of a sudden my communication is not unintelligible, but I'm communicating the same way my father would have me to communicate. See, Paul says my, my prayer to God is, uh, and, and my desire for them is that they be saved. My brother in Israel be saved. Well, that's the same thing that God will want for them. But it takes the time to get to that. Prayer is progressive. But I can't progress until I start. And it, it's four things that make up the church. Prayer is only one of them. Uh, but I just kind of felt led of God to really hang my hat there this morning. And, and I hope something that has been said to compel us, not just you guys, but us, um, to not only get it in God's face more frequently, but more selflessly. Let's strive not, not only to pray, because some of us have conquered that. We, we, we beg. Treat God like Santa Claus. Just hop on. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. But let's, let's strive to grow in our prayer lives, to mature. Petition has its place. We got some legitimate things we need. Nothing wrong with that. But let's progress this intercession. Well, what about that? You got some loved ones that, whether they know it or not, they're depending on your prayer life. Jesus told Peter, look, Satan desires to have you. That he may sift you like wheat. But what? I pray for you that your faith fail not. Ain't that something? you got to be that Christ in somebody's life. 
you got to be praying for some folks. Well, Peter didn't ask, hey, hey, Jesus, pray on my behalf when I'm going through something. He, he didn't know he needed prayer. I'm ready to go with you to jail and to the grave. Memphis is dependent on y'all downtown. Unbelieving family members are dependent on you guys. Marriages are dependent on you, whether they know it or not. Marriages are dependent on you guys. So your your prayer life is is more important than just your own personal comfort. Having said that, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Mm. You had us to know that we can't live off bread alone. That is, we can't just give attention to our physical person. But we need every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. You didn't leave us here alone, but you you didn't leave us as orphans. You gave us your Holy Spirit. We can get in tune with you. We can fellowship with him, with the person of the Holy Spirit. We can intercede for people groups that we've never come in contact with. We can make a difference in foreign lands that we've never set foot on. We can change the course, spiritually speaking, of, of entire communities, cities. We can cause legislation to be passed. We can cause people to occupy positions of power. Not because we're so great, intelligent, charismatic. Not because in and of, in and of ourselves we have some kind of, of, of influence. Because of prayer, God, you're sovereign and you, you hold these realities in your hand. Prayer is how you come into our situation and make a difference. Prayer is how you empower your church to be effective, God. We thank you for that. For your concern and perpetual love for us despite our sin. Despite our theological misgivings, God. We we, we don't even pray to you as we ought to. Your servant says we don't pray as we ought, but, but your Holy Spirit maketh intercessions on our behalf. We thank you for him. And God, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe someone's here under the sound of my voice. They don't know you. They hear me talking about communicating with you. That's, that's something foreign to them. But maybe they feel compelled to pursue that relationship, God. I, I just need you to just breathe on their heart and, and soften that heart of stone and, and, and make that relationship possible. You've already given the life of your son. Sat there and hung on the cross after living a sinless life. You, you died in our place. Paid off that sin that, that, that we accrued. We sin, not you. Thank you for your salvation. God, you're within reach. You could be an ever-present help. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say thank God. Amen.